There are large companies and what you can see is a couple different pieces. On their own website, they might talk about their security measures. If they have been able to certify and pass certain security measures, you can have a stronger level of comfort of their security practices, but that does not mean that there's nothing left for you, the company, to do. Because again, you have to think about who has access to that information and the different settings. In fact, this is often true on Amazon Web Services, AWS. A lot of people say, well, it's on AWS, I'm good. Actually, there's layers of security that the person or the company who's setting it up, depending on how it's being used, needs to actually be set up. So it's not like, oh, it's on Amazon, poof, I'm all done. You're on Amazon. It's like the platform. It's like the platter. But you're responsible for everything you put on top of that. Welcome to the Midland Money Mindset Show. This is a podcast about the financial, money, and recreational mindset needed to successfully plan for and live your best life before and through retirement. Let's dive into today's show. I'm Larry Sprung, your host for the Midland Money Mindset Show and founder and wealth advisor of Midland Financial. Today's guest is Jody Daniels founder and CEO of Red Clover Advisors, a privacy consultancy helping companies from startup to Fortune 100 create privacy programs, build customer trust, and achieve privacy law compliance. Founded in 2017, Red Clover Advisors is currently one of the few certified women's business enterprises focused solely on privacy. Jody is a certified information privacy professional, a national keynote speaker, and has been featured in The Economist, Thrive Global, Authority Magazine, Medium, and is also a member of the Forbes Business Council. And if that wasn't enough, she's also the co-host of She Said Privacy, He Said Security podcast. Privacy, the internet, and business are all top of mind and concerns for most out there. So stay tuned to hear what you should be doing to maintain the privacy of your business, your clients, and yourself. Hello, everybody. Larry Sprung here, and I have the pleasure of being with Jody Daniels, founder and CEO of Red Clover Advisors. Thanks for joining us today, Jody. Well, hi. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, it's awesome. So it's kind of a small world. I like to tell everybody how we met. We met through social media and it turns out we have a lot of connections in common, which is great and some really good friends and good people that are connected between us. So I'm happy to have you here today. It is really interesting how small the world is. And I love social media for that aspect. It's really interesting to see who's connected to who and wait, wait, uh, yeah, I know that person. <laughs> yeah. I think the old adage of six degrees of separation has come down to two or three because of social media. So I think you're right. Yeah. So listen, in order for our audience to get a, an understanding of who you are and how you came about to founding Red Clover Advisors, can you tell us a little bit about your path to founding it? Sure. So I graduated Emory University. It's how I got to Atlanta, Georgia. Still here. I remember when people said that they've lived here 20 plus years, that seemed really old and ancient. And now I'm in that old and ancient category. But I started my career in accounting and worked at Deloitte. Then from there, went to finance and strategy at the Home Depot. 
Then I went into marketing and advertising at autotrader.com and kind of Cox Enterprises that owns that and a variety of their subsidiaries. That's actually how I got to privacy. I stalked you for cars. So if anyone shops at autotrader.com and might have been responsible for your car purchase. But in all seriousness, that's when the online advertising industry came together to start trying to figure out what should we do with privacy. And so I was responsible for privacy there, built a privacy program, went to Bank of America, was their digital privacy lead, and decided after 19 years of corporate, that was fun. And I was ready to do something different and on my own. So I gathered up all that personal experience across all those different disciplines to found a boutique privacy consultancy, which is Red Clover Advisors. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about privacy is obviously something that's talked about pretty often these days with the internet being so prolific and everything online. What does Red Clover Advisors specifically do in that area? Right. Well, almost everything is online these days. You're either B2C where you're collecting information. Maybe you're a restaurant and placing my order. I'm buying my new favorite shirt. So you have my information, my address, my financial information, my favorite shirt size, everything about me. Now you want to market to me because you want to sell me more things. Maybe you're B2B and you're a tool that can collect customer information, help me market better. Your whole service is online. And there's a variety of privacy laws now that our companies have to adhere to. They have to understand the data that they collect, what they're doing with it. Individuals have rights. And so what we do is we help companies understand what their obligations are as it relates to different privacy laws. And we're the guide. We're helping them understand what is this law and how does it apply to them? And whatever the specific requirements are underneath it, we're going to help them actually implement and what we call operationalize those requirements. So you kind of think of us as the outsourced privacy office that many companies don't have because they don't need it. It's not a Mm full-time role, but they need someone paying attention to it. And we serve that capacity. I think that's very important, especially we're all online. Like you said, all of our information is really out there. What do companies have to think about in order to protect their clients, their customers and employees? Are there certain things that they have to think about in that regard? There are. It's a really great question. The first part is, and I like how you mentioned employees and vendors and customers, because so often people always think about just the customer, but the employees count too, (laughs) as do the vendors. And so the first part is to know where your data is. You actually can't protect anything if you don't know where it is. And many people will think about kind of the core systems, but it can be in a variety of other places. How many Google Drives and Dropboxes? I once had a client and at the same company, But each department had their own Dropbox account. (laughs) There's no centralization. Everyone had to understand, well, how many Dropbox accounts are there? So you have to really understand where your data actually is. And then who else is it going to? Who are the vendors that you're sending that information to? The first part is you're going to want to understand who that vendor is and what their levels of security are. What are they doing with that data? And how are they protecting it? On your side, you want to have a strong password. And you want to match that with what's called MFA or two-factor authentication or multi-factor authentication. That's that little one-time passcode. You might get it to your phone. It's actually preferred not to use your phone anymore as a text message and rather use an authentication app, Google Authenticator, Authy, Ping. There's a gazillion of different ones that are out there. But those two pieces combined is a significant starting point to being able to protect your data. As well as then you know where your data is, you can also do access control. Maybe everyone in the company doesn't need access to the data and you start to segregate. Sally has access to this and Harry has access to that. 
Hmm. Now, you say about multi-factor authentication, I think the most common one happens to be, and probably one of the first ones, was really the text message option. Maybe email was before that, I don't know. But why is the recommendation to steer away now from the text message as the multi-factor authentication, as opposed to now you're saying using one of these authenticator apps, if you will? Sure. So the reason behind that is that people are now able to port phone numbers and kind of steal the phone number. So if you steal the phone number and then try and reset everything to the phone number, now you have access. And it's actually happened. I have a good friend of mine who this exact scenario happened. And thankfully, they were on top of it pretty quickly and were able to recover money from their bank account. But it is a real thing. And so that is why. That's interesting. Maybe I should ask you this. So I'll tell you a story about something that happened to us here as, as a firm. And Obviously, we're dealing with money and people ask to have money sent to their bank account all the time, right? And we make a point that we will not do anything unless we verbally verify with the client before prior to moving that money. And we had an incident where somebody sent us an email. It looked like it was from them. It looked like it was from their email, basically asking us to liquidate and send their money to their bank account that was on file. And I basically emailed back, said, hey, we'd be happy to do this, but we can't do a V email. I need you to give me a call. And the email came back saying, I just had oral surgery. I can't speak. My mouth hurts. Just do it kind of thing. And I said, can't. I'm going to need you to call me. And I got a trusted contact on the phone, found out that there was nothing wrong orally, that she had surgery and was waiting for a call back. Now, the question is, if we were to have done that, let's say, and sent the money to the bank account, how do these criminals, if you will, how do they divert the money from her bank account to this place if we were to just send it to her bank account on file? Is that possible? It is. The new technical nuance is probably not exactly my specialty, but it can be. They have other ways of, as soon as it's kind of in there, to go in and maybe have set themselves up as another user and push it out. You know how you can have multiple people within and ha- and kind of once the money is inside, you can then divert so they can go and set something like that up. Traditionally, what they've done is they've gone in and they've set up a different bank account. So it's kind of more of a fictitious one. As soon as you send the wire, it's not actually going to who you think it is. It's going to them. But in this situation, had you actually sent it to the correct bank account, a malicious actor still could have said as soon as it hits, send it out again and push the money out another way. That's amazing. Your process is actually the preferred process. So good for you for making sure that you stuck with it. And to anyone listening, you do, it's a hassle. We think in today's day and age, like really, why why do I need to call you? Who calls people anymore? Right. But no, you actually want to call whenever you have a business wire and something along those lines happening and making sure that it's going to the right place. Yeah, it's crazy. So listen, there are obviously things that companies should be doing to protect their data and the people mentioned above, the clients, the customers, and employees. Other than the multi-factor authentication across the board, what are some brass tax minimums that companies should be doing? I guess voice verifying, you know, withdrawals and things like that also. What are some brass tax minimums that companies should be doing to protect their data and those people? Well, you want to know who has access. So I mentioned access control a little bit, but that's a really important one. Who has access to a customer's account? 
Who has access to diverting money, inbound or outbound? Who has access to all of the financial information or all of the details about that customer? You actually have personal data, but there's also confidential data within that, right? Regardless of what kind of business you're in, you have confidential information and you don't want that information to get leaked either. So strong access controls, people kind of call it identity management, making sure that you have Jody really logging in as Jody and not Fred. Who am I? So that's going to be a really important one. The vendor piece, many people are working with third parties, maybe independent contractors or consultants, and also potentially around the globe. So you want to understand, well, where is that data going? Are they on their own devices? Is it in their own Google Drives? Are they downloading that? And removing access from people that you're no longer working with is another important piece. So oftentimes companies are asking the questions, well, who are you and what are your security practices? Do you have training? Where do you store information? Is it encrypted? That's another really important piece is how data is sent. Data should be sent in an encrypted fashion. You can encrypt a laptop. You can use encrypted or secure email. If you have to send big files, use secure file transfers. Don't just send your social security numbers and the massive W-2 Excel export in email. Don't do that. And I can't tell you how many times that actually still happens. And it I'm sure a lot still happens all the time. And it's incredibly expensive. It can be from thousands of dollars to millions of dollars from one Excel file of employee W-2 information. Right. Now, are there specific vendors? Because you've mentioned Google, for example, Google drives a couple of times for a company to vet the privacy of a Google, Google's not going to respond to a request necessarily of, you know, hey, we want you to fill out this questionnaire or this checklist to make sure that you qualify based upon our security requirements. Are there some vendors that are just like, by de facto, they qualify for those criteria that you mentioned that you can use them without really having to go much further and just know that they're a safe provider from a privacy standpoint? So I think you always have to, and I just picked on Google because it seems like so many companies are often using Google Drive. I personally use Dropbox. There are large companies and what you can see is a couple different pieces. On their own website, they might talk about their security measures. If they have been able to certify and pass certain security measures, you can have a stronger level of comfort of their security practices, but that does not mean that there's nothing left for you, the company, to do. Because again, you have to think about who has access to that information and the different settings. In fact, this is often true on Amazon Web Services, AWS. A lot of people say, well, it's on AWS, I'm good. Actually, there's layers of security that the person or the company who's setting it up, depending on how it's being used, needs to actually be set up. Hmm. So it's not like, oh, it's on Amazon, poof, I'm all done. You're on Amazon. It's like the platform. It's like the platter. But you're responsible for everything you put on top of that. And there's all kinds of different settings. We met on a social media platform. So think about all the different settings there. Do you want your post to go out to everyone, not to everyone? There's different privacy settings. We have to control that. The same is true on the security side. Okay. Obviously, there are probably a lot of different size companies and business owners that are listening to this. How differently does privacy need to be handled based upon the size of a company? Does a half a million dollar revenue with one or two employees have to act differently than a company that has hundreds of employees and millions of dollars in revenue? Or can they be expected to handle things the same way? Or should they? It's a really interesting question. If for anyone listening, if they do business in Europe and you don't have to have a physical location in Europe, you just could have 
Jody as a customer in Europe. Just one. That's all that you need. Or you're trying to target Jody, and, and so you have a lot of marketing activities. It's equal. Whether you make a dollar, a million dollars, or a billion dollars, it doesn't matter. It's focused on the personal data, and it's an individual fundamental right. Here in the United States, we're very company-friendly and compliance-friendly. We don't want burdens on smaller businesses. So many of the privacy laws, not all of them, but a lot of them, and especially the new state laws that are starting to emerge, have floors and thresholds, and they do it either by revenue and or the amount of personal data. What I would offer is you can't only look at that floor, though, because depending on the business you're in, well, and actually I'd even say for almost all of it, People now have a new expectation that you're following the privacy laws. Let's take a small startup. They're trying to probably get the big company as the customer. Right. So is the big company as the customer going to say, you know what? You're small. It's okay. You can do anything you want with our pri- with our data. That's fine. You don't need to comply with any laws. Probably not. Right. So to compete, they have to play at that game. And that means they're going to need to comply with that particular law, even if they're smaller than the official threshold. Well, they're not going to attract the business because the business is going to ask them if they're complying with that. And if they can't say yes, then they're probably shooting themselves in the foot right out of the gate in that regard. Exactly. I get a lot of phone calls of people saying, you know what? I got XYZ order in and I can't fulfill it until I can say that I'm complying with this particular law. It comes a lot. Now on the B2C side, Let's take all of us. If there's an amazing new app that's come out and wants to collect all of our health information, are you going to run to it? Or do you want some assurance what their privacy and security posture is? Probably want some comfort of who are you and what are you going to do with this information? It might be too small to officially have to provide that information according to some state laws or federal laws, but you're probably not going to be able to build the base that you want unless you're able to alleviate any concerns that someone would have. So for me, it really comes down to the type of personal data that you have. And obviously, there's a risk posture that every company has to take. There's a technical answer, which is, yes, there are some floors, but then there's the reality. Right. And then you talk about federal and state laws. Are they congruent with each other? Or is there some dichotomy there where there's some interpretation where the states are either more protective versus the federal laws or vice versa? How does that work? The federal laws right now, so in the United States, we have what's called a sectoral system. We're all probably familiar with HIPAA that's going to manage healthcare. It's a federal law. Then you have Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, GLBA, which is going to cover the financial. For marketing, why we can all opt out, there's a marketing law for email. There's a marketing law for the phone calls and text messages. There's actually not a federal law that covers just overall data privacy. Like the exists in Europe. So in Europe, it's called GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation. It's why many listeners probably are used to seeing cookie banners and privacy notices all over the place. Right. That's just the little external part. What's happening in the United States is the states are starting to create the privacy laws. The state of California is the one that created the most comprehensive privacy law in the United States of this time. And there's many others that are looking to follow. So the California law was passed in 2018, became effective and enforced in 2020. So many companies, especially online today, you might be doing business with people from California, which meant it isn't just for Californians or California companies, right? An Atlanta-based company, a New York company, a Kansas company, someone in Tahiti all have to comply if they're serving people in California and meet the rules. And the other states are kind of following a variety of approaches. They're considering California's view, Europe's view, and somewhere in between. And will there be a federal law 
It's always the question everyone asks. <laughs> it's kind of like throw a dart. They've been introduced every year for the past 15 years. We still don't have one. And part right. of the argument is who will be stronger, the federal law, the state law. So right now it's state by state. Okay. I think everybody out there, including myself, is wondering, are there any ways or technology out there that can make a business impenetrable? Or is that simply just like an audacious goal that will probably never really come to fruition, that will never be fully impenetrable? It's just we have to do the best we can with what we have. I believe the latter of what you just said. There will certainly be a security company out there that's going to say it has the most amazing technology and will say it's 100% impenetrable. I would say many security professionals uh, and probably privacy professionals would say there's always going to be a new threat. Someone's going to find and skirt their way around what it is. And what you need to do is the best related to the data that you have and continue to iterate based on that over time. Yeah, it seems like it's such a hard thing because every time they figure out a solution to one thing, there's a new thing that comes out that they're trying to penetrate businesses or whatever the new way of them trying to get whatever they want. It's so hard to keep track of because it constantly is changing. Exactly. That's exactly it. So I'm not really sold on the 100% because I just think there's so many different ways into an organization that it's very hard to perfectly do it. But that's also not reason to say, well, it's just too hard. I'm not going to do it. Right. Yeah. I mean, so does that mean, based upon what you said, are data breaches basically inevitable? I mean, is every company's expectation that at some point that they're going to have some kind of issue because of this? Well, the stats out there would say it's at least two thirds of especially small businesses will suffer some type of data breach. And most security and privacy folks will say it's a matter of if not when. I'm sorry, it's a matter of when, not if. I said that backwards. <laughs> Morning coffee hasn't kicked in yet. At the same time, whether someone is able to make their way into the system is different than the type of data that they can get to. So you might be able to have someone make their way in the system, but a data breach is a problem because they've exposed the data. So if you can have your data appropriately encrypted, maybe it's de-identified, it's behind a variety of different firewalls. If you're able to protect the data, then the fact that someone was able to make their way in, maybe the first gate didn't work, but when they ultimately make their way to the actual data, it's protected. Other ways are people are segregating the different data. So maybe you make it to tenant A, but you didn't make it to the hundreds of others that are out there. Do they give up? I mean, if they get in and you have that encrypted, is there some sense that they get in, oh, it's encrypted, let me move on? Or is it more or less, depending upon the size of that organization, whether or not they continue to move forward or not? I think it's dependent on the company and probably the actual hacker of, do I like a challenge or it's too hard, I'm going to go to the next one. It's kind of like if you have the alarm sign outside, someone might not do it. Someone else might say, okay, I'll go try it. Maybe it's not on. Oh, it's on. All right, I'm going to leave. Oh, it's on. Okay, I got 20 seconds. You know, everyone's all <laughs> So you basically just do the best you can and hope for the best, I guess, is what you're saying is, you know. It's to do all the right things. It's this kind of idea of reasonable security measures. And that's relative to your industry and to the type of data that someone has. If someone has name and email versus health information, well, the sensitivity of the health information is going to warrant additional security controls. It doesn't mean that the name and email isn't a problem, but health is a little bit of a more sensitive field. So it's really all about understanding the data that you have and protecting it accordingly. 
Yeah. I mean, obviously there's some inherent cost here, right? It costs the company whatever to implement these processes and procedures, costs to make sure that they're doing what they're doing and to identify any potential breaches. Do you have any idea of what the cost is to the corporate world in terms of protection and maybe even on the breach side, if those numbers are even separated like that? So actually there's a big report called um, Ponemon. And or Panaman, I guess it depends on who you ask. I bet tomato, like, tomato, tomato, tomato. So that company, they put out an annual report and they actually just put out the 2020 report. And the total cost to a company to deal with a data breach is just under $4 million. Now, obviously that's kind of an average size. You have to factor in the smaller company to the big company, but kind of the average size can be around 4 million. And then they also sort of look at it by record, which might be more helpful statistic, which is generally between two and $300 per record is the cost to a company when there's a data breach. You have the obvious, depending on the type of breach that you have, if you have ransomware, your computers and systems are shut down. You might have manufacturing facilities that you can't operate for weeks. You might have, maybe you're an online business and it's literally shut down. It kind of depends. Is whatever data they got not a really big deal? You have backups, you're able to come right back on. Those are completely different scenarios. So you have to understand the type of situation that you have and the impact to the business. Then also you might have the cost to the individuals. Do you have to monitor their credit? Things like that. You have PR costs that might be there. You also have to look at any contracts you have because potentially if you had a data breach, you now have a breach of contract and you might have to look at that as well. Wow. Just a so, few. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it's a very costly proposition, not only if the data breach, but even just keeping the security and the upkeep on a regular basis, which ultimately gets passed along to the consumer, right? In the price of the goods or whatever the service is being provided by that particular company. It does. And the other interesting piece right now is in the United States at the state level, the individual rights. So from a privacy point of view, individuals have the right to ask a company, let me delete my data. Let me ask you what type of data you have. And there's some exceptions. But one of the rights that exists right now in California is there's a private right of action in the event of a data breach. And that's actually the big discussion point for other states. Should there be an individual right for that or not? We live in a very litigious society. There are a number of different lawsuits underway right now under California. So it'll be interesting to see what comes of those. It's kind of too new to have the full output of it. Right. But that's a really big piece is if they have a data breach, is it the company's fault? Where does the company, the victim, what did they do? What did they not do? And as the new laws keep coming, it's a significant argument of how much class action lawsuit, basically an individual private right of action would someone have. Yeah. So let's pivot for a second here now, because we talked a little bit about the consumer, right? Let's shift to the other side of the coin, so to speak. As a consumer, somebody who's buying things online, using services online, what should I be concerned about? What are things that I should be on the lookout for? Well, you probably do want to know the company you're buying from and what they're doing. So from a security standpoint, the kind of the basic one, does it have an S on the website? Is it a secure website? You would be surprised today how many websites are still not secure. If you go to a non-secure website, don't buy something. I don't care how much and excited you are, don't buy it because the likelihood of that information getting out is very high. The other is really the question of what that company is doing with your data. 
So if you buy XYZ good, are they going to keep marketing to you? Are they going to share that information to somebody else so that they can market to you? We magically get catalogs all day long from places that we have never heard of before. And we know that they've bought our names from somewhere. So are you okay with that information? And in the online world, what happens is we basically have a digital footprint. There's Many people might have heard of cookies or pixels or technologies. We're moving away from cookie lists, but it's going to be some kind of different related concept. Right. It won't be called a cookie. And it's meant to track you and be able to get a sense of Jody looked at this this morning, then Jody went to go do this and get a sense of who is this Jody person so that the advertising can be relevant to the individual. So the ad tech world today is kind of changing the idea of, oh, you were shopping for this blender and now you notice the blender showing up in Facebook. That universe is going to start shifting and the content might be shifting. They might also start seeing paid content, paid content walls. So it'll be really interesting to kind of see how this all shakes out. But generally, you want to think about when you're going to give information to a company or a site, well, what are they doing with it? And your antennas should go up based on the types of questions they ask you. Are they asking you about your family, about your financial information, your health information? Before you give it all away, who are they? And how comfortable are you with that information? And then I know we're talking about consumers, but if you give kind of make up information, keep in mind to anyone listening that the, as a company, you might be getting bad information. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, listen, you we all get those things, you know, hey, do you want to opt in? And there's this long privacy policy or disclosure. I don't think really most people read it. I mean, should we be reading that? Are there things that we should be looking in there and hitting find on our PDF finder to see if there are specific terms in there before we move forward? Yeah. So you do want to read those. I write those things. You do want to read them. So there's a couple interesting pieces. So first is Apple is actually pushing the industry forward with kind of nutrition label-like privacy notices in the App Store. So today, if you're going to download an app, you can go, you can click on the privacy link, hit it, read whatever you want. In the future, you're going to have sort of a privacy... First off, you're going to have boxes that pop up. Do you want to share your tracking information with... XYZ app? Do you want to be tracked? Do you want, do you consent to that? Then there's going to be a privacy thing with kind of pictures and explanations of the type of data that they collect, use, share with third parties. And the big new buzzword is sell and or share. Now, when people hear the word sell, companies aren't always selling data, but under the California law, it's a very broad definition and kind of all the advertising can sometimes be construed as sell. So if you think about that PDF finder idea that you just had, a big one can be sell. Like you could look up sell third parties because that would give them a clue of how they're using the data or who they're sharing it with. Interesting. So it's going to be easier on the horizon. It's just a matter of it's coming kind of. uh, We have to wait for it. It is coming. And then for anyone who doesn't like being tracked, all the browsers are moving towards browser control for mm-hmm. being able to opt out. And the way that kind of works is the you can go in on the browser, but it doesn't really work if the other side, if the website's not honoring it. So all the browsers have sort of new modern versions of these do not track capabilities. And you're going to have more and more companies starting to honor it because of the different state laws. Yeah, I mean, some of the stuff that's going on, I mean, we could take it offline for a second. And I'm aware now that in certain department stores, they are sending out high-pitched sounds that our cell phones are picking up and marketing to us that way, 
which is kind of crazy. And the only way you could kind of prevent that is if you turn off your Bluetooth and they know you're in the store and they start marketing to you. They're sending emails while you're in the store with coupons and sales. And it's crazy what these phones and these devices that we have have the ability to do. And that tracking functionality, knowing everything that we're doing almost all the time is amazing and frightening at the same time. It really is. As a parent of kids, I want to be able to track. They don't have a phone yet. I'm the terrible parent because they don't have a phone. But when they get their phones, eventually in years to come, then I, I want that capability. But the key is notice and control. And that's the really important piece from a privacy point of view that the laws are now kind of here to try and make them happen. We could have a whole different conversation. Is that going to be effective or not? But you always have companies who are trying to push the envelope and they don't inform and they don't give you choice. And that's really where the challenge is. Because if you told me what you're doing, maybe I feel a little bit bit better. I might not have felt like you were stalking me. If you give me choices, now one could argue it should be opt-in or opt-out. We won't do that debate here. But the idea of choice and informed choice is really important. Sure. So you mentioned it earlier about the S at the end of the HTTPS that you said, if the S isn't there, whatever you're looking to buy, however you love it, do not buy it because the likelihood of of an issue there is very high. So that's something right away that's very easily actionable. I'm not buying from that provider for that reason. Are there any other red flags that are similar to that, that you don't have to go through the whole privacy thing that's just as easy if this, then you really want to stay away without having to even go through those documents and those opt-ins, opt-outs? I think it's, you know, kind of who the website is. I think a lot of websites, especially today when you're going to buy something, they have a PayPal, an Amazon Pay, an Apple Pay, a Google Pay, a some other kind of pay. <laughs> and all of those are good options. The less you can give an actual website, so many of the websites might not be taking the data directly. Like let's take a credit card. They generally have a third payment processor behind that's actually receiving that information. But the less places that you can have, the better. So if you see an option with a PayPal or any of those others, pick that. You know, if it's a secure website, if you feel like this is a legitimate website, then feel comfortable putting in your information. In terms of legitimate website, you know, if you're looking for some type of special like Owl Nightlight for grandma and you stumbled upon owlnightlights.com and you've never heard of them before, is the English good? Does it look like a real website? Because unfortunately, there are so many websites today that are trying to take advantage of people. And the kind of connected to that is if you get an email that you've never heard of this company before, don't click on that. Right. If you're kind of curious and think it's legitimate, at least go to Google and type it in and see if it's legitimate. But so much comes through those emails and it's all a phishing scam. And so for anyone not quite familiar with phishing, phishing is all about where they're trying to get your information by hooking you through an email. So when you click that link and start typing, it actually gathers all the information. It might not even be a real website. Right. And that is off the charts especially nowadays, and will continue and remain to be one of the easiest ways for hackers to get in an individual all the way to multi-billion dollar companies is through a phishing email. Yeah. And like you said, with the payments, I try to use Apple Pay whenever I can with my credit cards because I learned a couple of years ago, which I had no idea that when you pay that, that way, it doesn't actually even transmit your real credit card number or the address information. 
and the level of security is that much higher. So I try to use that as much as possible because of the protection feature, which a lot of people aren't aware of. I think Apple should really do a better job marketing that piece because I think if people were aware of what it does by paying that way, I think it would really up the uh, utilization of that tool if people were really aware. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah. Well, listen, it's been a pleasure. We sum up every show by asking each guest the same question, which is, what did you do today that brought you joy and put you in the right mindset for success? Mm, that's a good one. Can I have two? I have to sure. have two. All right. Sure. So the first is that I started my day by snuggling with my kids, and that always brings me joy. And and the furry the furry dog, but I also took some time this morning for me. I made a, a you know a good cup of coffee and just took some time for me this morning before starting the week. And I think that's really important is to have whether it's one minute, two minutes, fifteen minutes, but some amount of time for each person in in the morning. Yeah, you probably wouldn't want to have the cup of coffee and snuggle at the same time. It might no. hurt one of the kids. No, that probably <laughs> wouldn't work. But there's nothing like little kid snuggles. I agree. Unfortunately, mine are now 15 and 18, so there's no more little kid snuggles any longer, but I do remember those. So if people want to find you, we're going to have all your information in the show notes, but what's the easiest way for them to learn more about you and Red Clover Advisors if they want to learn more? Yeah, come visit our website. So redcloveradvisors.com. We have a ton of free resources that are there, articles, a podcast, um, and oodles of information to learn more all about privacy. Great, Jody. It's been a pleasure having you. It's been very enlightening for me. I love talking about privacy because this is uh, very fascinating and very important in my industry and my business. So I love learning about this stuff. And I want to thank you for being a guest on the show and make it a great day. Thank you. You too. I want to thank Jody Daniels for being a guest on the Midland Money Mindset Show. Jody makes privacy easy to understand by breaking it down into measurable steps using plain language her clients can relate to. She passionately supports the idea that privacy is more than just compliance and concern over fines. It's a human right we all deserve. She has made it her mission to help businesses build trust and transparency with this core value at its foundation. Jody and Red Clover can be found across all social media platforms, and all the contact information needed to find her can be found in the show notes. Thank you for joining us this week on the Midland Money Mindset. Make sure you visit our website at midlandfinancial.com and be sure to smash the subscribe button so you don't miss a show. We encourage you to help others find our valuable content. And listen, please don't keep us a secret. You can also schedule an Is There a Fit call right from our website or by using the link that you'll find in the description section of your podcast player or app. Be sure to join us for our next episode to learn more about the mindset needed to successfully plan for and live your best life before and through retirement. The opinions voiced in the Midland Money Mindset Show with Lawrence Sprung are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. No strategy ensures success or protects against loss. 
To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial, or tax advisor prior to investing. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Guests on the Midland Money Mindset Show are not affiliated with CWM LLC.